Good morning. Good to see you again. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we are glad that you're here. You're uh, welcome in this place. And uh, if we can serve you in any way, if there's anything that we can be doing for you, please uh, let us know. Uh, well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, the passage is also printed there in your order of service. You can follow along there. Last week, we began our study in the book of Exodus by not looking at chapter 1, but we began with chapter 6. Remember, there are those three verses in chapter 6 that function in some ways as almost like a theme verse for the entire book. Those three verses that tell us how God is going to deliver his people from their bondage, that this is the God that's going to reveal himself and show himself to his people and take them out of the bondage that they are under in Egypt. He's going to deliver them. That's what we talked about last week, but, but in order to understand the bondage that they're in, we have to go back to the very beginning, to Exodus chapter 1, and that's where we're going to start this morning. And as I've been thinking about uh, this book of Exodus, been reading through it and, and looking at different commentaries. I was struck again this week about how cool of a story Exodus is. Like Exodus is the ideal story if you're a little boy because it's got things like frogs and boils and gnats and bushes that burn and, and war and battles and seas that part and, and rivers turning into blood. I mean, it just captures the imagination. It's very, very intriguing. It, it's a very, very cool book. But as I was reading this passage this week, again, I was struck by also how dark this book is. See, because this book, not only is it very cool, not only is it very imaginative, but it's, it's also uh, a book that, that is very dark because there is great acts of wickedness that are perpetrated within this book. That there are great and terrible acts that Pharaoh does against God's people. So, so though it captures our imagination, it should also bear upon our hearts the, the sadness and the, the terribleness of what Pharaoh does against the people of God. But what we're going to see this morning is that wickedness, though it is not destroyed in our passage, it is held at bay. That the wickedness of Pharaoh is held at bay, that, that the fear of man is overcome by the fear of God. And that wickedness through God's people is held at bay. And so let's go ahead and read chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
They built for Pharaoh, store cities, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fear is an extremely powerful emotion. It it can control us. It can cause us to see things that aren't there and hear noises when there is only silence. Fear can cause us to ignore what is true and and control our thoughts and our actions. It's very powerful. I remember a number of years ago, I felt the power of fear. It was shortly after I graduated from college, and I was spending time with a friend of mine, a friend who had become a Christian through our campus ministry, and we spent time together by by watching movies. We bonded over watching critically acclaimed movies of the day, but also classic movies that showed up on those top 100 lists. And so on this particular night, we decide we're going to scour those top 100 lists and we're going to find one of those movies we had never seen. And so we picked one. Now, now you have to know something. We, we uh, picked this movie um, because neither of us had ever seen it and because we had heard that it was terrifying. But really, I mean, a movie can't be that scary, right? Well, we started watching it. Uh, we, we were foolish enough to start watching it about 9 or 10 o'clock at night rather than like 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and we start watching it in his apartment, and sure enough, this movie was as scary as it had been reported. Uh, the, the movie was called The Shining. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, uh, learn from my mistake. Do not watch this movie. It was terrifying. It scared me to death. And to make matters worth, worse, we ended the movie about 1, 2 in the morning. I had to drive across town back to my house. I wasn't staying at my friend's apartment, so I drive across town, and and I'm staying in this home. I'm renting from a friend, and and none of my roommates are home because they're gone for the weekend. And we're living in this part of town. It wasn't the worst part of town, but it was close enough to the worst part of town that you knew you weren't supposed to walk around at night. So it's like 2 in the morning. It's dark. It's scary. It's cold because it's the middle of winter, right? And, And I just watched The Shining, so I am freaking out. I open the door, and, and I know that this is probably going to drop my man card a little bit, but, but I turned on every light in the house. <laughs> I walked into every single room, and I looked behind doors and under beds and in closets, and, and I made sure right, someone wasn't going to jump out at me. Right? I knew I was going to be safe. I knew there was nothing to be afraid of, and yet I saw shadows, and I heard noises. 
well, I scoured the house and there was nothing to be found. I was perfectly safe. So I laid down in bed. My heart started to return to its normal speed. My breathing calmed and I was just about to fall to sleep when I was erupted by a noise, a sound. Okay, now surely my mind's playing tricks on me, right? Because I just saw nothing is there. I know the truth. I'm perfectly safe. But then I heard it again. It wasn't the wind and it wasn't the house creaking. So in my fear, I muster up the courage and I get out of bed and I start looking through the house again. I walk through the kitchen and I turn on the light. I go down the hall and through the living room and I find myself outside my roommate's room with the door closed and now I can hear the sound on the other side of the door. There is something there. It's not my roommate because he's out of town. So very slowly and carefully, I open the door, I turn on the light, and there on the floor in the corner is his dog, Penny. (laughs) (laughs) He had the dog before he had me and named his dog Penny. (laughs) But there she was, asleep, and in her sleep, she was dreaming, and in her dreaming, she was moaning and groaning. I breathed a sigh of relief and knew there was nothing to be afraid of. Fear is a powerful emotion. It can make us think that things are there when they really aren't. It can make us hear things when there is silence. It can make us think that there is a threat when we are perfectly safe. It can stir in us great courage, but it can also make us believe terrible lies. It can make us see things in in corners, but it can also make us trust. Fear is a powerful emotion. And we see this emotion at play in our passage this morning. This fear that is controlling and consuming. It's causing one group of people to perceive something that is false, and it's causing another to place their complete trust in the Lord. You see, in our passage this morning, we have two main groups of people. We have Pharaoh and we have the Hebrew midwives. And both of them are being motivated in their actions by fear. They're both being motivated by fear. We see Pharaoh, he is feared at the perceived threat of man. The midwives, their fear is driven by a fear of God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to take both of these groups of people and see how their fear drives them in different directions. So we'll begin with Pharaoh and his fear of man. We see it played out in verses 8 through 10. Follow along there. We read, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us dwell shrewdly with, deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so do you hear his concern? Israel's become too numerous. They're, they're growing in numbers. And so he's afraid that if war would break out, if Egypt's enemies would come, that Israel would side with Egypt's enemies. And that they would use their numbers and their power to destroy Egypt, to flee from the land and to take some of Pharaoh's power from him. He's afraid of what might happen if Israel is left to itself. But this fear is irrational. 
It's irrational. It's simply a perception. It's not reality. And the reason why we know it's a perception and not reality is because what we're told in verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. See, that's the first problem, because if he would have known Joseph, if he would have remembered his history, then his fears would have been dispelled. Okay, what do we know about Joseph? Joseph's story is told at the end of Genesis. Remember, uh, the Pentateuch is a five-part story, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And at the end of Genesis, we have Joseph being uh, raised up. Okay, through a series of different events, he, he finds himself before a different pharaoh, a different king. Remember, he had this ability to interpret dreams. And the king, pharaoh, had this one dream about fat, fat cows and <clears throat> excuse me, skinny cows. And so Joseph come in, comes and interprets it. And he says the, the seven fat cows represent seven years of plenty and the seven skinny cows represent seven years of famine. And the king thought this was pretty good. And so he puts Joseph as prime minister over Egypt. And he says, it's your job to make sure we don't starve. So Joseph goes and he accumulates all the food in those seven years of plenty for those seven years of want. But what's amazing is that Joseph was used not just to preserve and to protect Israel and his family, but in those seven years of accumulating that food, he was actually protecting Egypt itself. See, Joseph was a blessing to Egypt, not just to Israel. He had cared for them. He wasn't a threat to them. In fact, the promise made to Abraham, do you remember the covenant promise made to Abraham that God would bless Abraham and through Abraham's line, the nations would be blessed? That is beginning to be worked out in Joseph. It's seed form. It comes to fullest fruition in Jesus, but it is beginning to be worked out with Joseph because he is blessing the nations. It is that very thing that Pharaoh forgets. Now, maybe he didn't know the history. There's debate as to who this Pharaoh was, which Pharaoh he was. So maybe he didn't know the history. Maybe he had never experienced Joseph. Maybe, maybe he was a different kind of king and he just didn't learn it. Or maybe he forgot. But whatever it was, he didn't know Joseph. And if he would have known Joseph, he would have realized Israel wasn't a threat to Egypt. They had been a blessing to them. New king didn't know his history. And so he sees them as a threat. And as a threat, what does he do? He enslaves them. We see this in verses 11 through 14. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them and heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Did you hear that? They afflicted them ruthlessly, bitterly. They filled them with hard service. Israel had done nothing to warrant this ill treatment, and yet fear had seized not just Pharaoh, but all the Egyptians. That's what we're told in verse 12. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, and so they enslaved them. Pharaoh was afraid that he would lose control, and so he controls God's people. He's afraid that they will take his power, and so he takes their power. 
But that wasn't enough. That didn't calm his fears. It didn't end this perceived threat, and so he ratchets up the affliction. He seeks to kill them. Look at verses 15 through 16. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Okay, so Pharaoh's acting like the capital in the Hunger Games. So some of you have seen that movie, The Hunger Games, or maybe you've read the books. So the capital is the, the power in this post-apocalyptic dystopia. So they're, they're the, the, the people who have the greatest power, and they are seeking to maintain their power by, by punishing the 12 different districts, right? So the way they do this isn't by eliminating the districts. They have the districts submit one boy and one girl every year to the Hunger Games, and they are to be... Uh, put into this fight to the death. And it's a way of controlling the people. They're not wanting to wipe them out. They're not wanting to destroy them. They want to control them and to strike fear into them. And that's what Pharaoh is doing. Did you notice he doesn't try to eliminate Israel? He's trying to eliminate the threat of Israel. He doesn't kill the, the girls. He just kills the boys, the future military. He is trying to destroy he doesn't want to give up his slave labor. He just wants to give up this military power. And so he enslaves and kills them. But what's interesting is that Pharaoh isn't simply forgetting the blessing that Israel had been to Egypt. He's also actively opposing the will of God. So I want you to think back now to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, when God created man, he created Adam and Eve, and what did he say about them? You shall be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that command to Adam and Eve, it was reiterated to Noah after the fall, and it was spoken again to Abraham, and it continues on even to this day that we are to be fruitful and multiply. And what Pharaoh is doing when he tries to kill these boys is he is actually trying to thwart the spread of God's image bearers into the world. He is opposing the will of God. Fear of Israel and of man, man is causing him to act wickedly. Now, in contrast to Pharaoh, we have the Hebrew midwives. They too fear, but, but not all fear leads to sin. and Not all fear is wrong. You see, there is some fear that all of us should have. There is good fear, the fear of God. Okay, let's pick up our story in verse 16. Pharaoh comes to these Hebrew midwives, to Shifra and to Puah, and he says, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Okay, so these midwives have this ethical dilemma. Should they obey this order even though it is immoral and unethical? Should they do what this authority over them has called them to do? Now, now, for us, we're, we're removed from this uh, a good number of years. <laughs> and we can read this, and it can go, well, of course they're supposed to reject that order. Of course. I mean, there, there shouldn't even be a doubt in their minds. But, but we have to remember this, this was an actual event that took place. Like, this isn't just some sort of story that is being told in the hypothetical. This is an actual ethical dilemma that they are confronted with. 
that if they disobey the king, they are in danger of experiencing his judgment, his real and actual judgment. I mean, think about it. If he was willing to kill baby boys, what would he do to a couple of midwives who actively disobeyed him? Their lives are in jeopardy. It is hanging in the balance. What will they fear? Verse 17. But the midwives feared God. But they feared God, not Pharaoh. Okay, what does the fear of God mean? What does it mean to fear God? This is a concept that I've really had to wrestle with. You know, when I think about the fear of God, the first thing that comes to mind is reverence, right? Maybe that's where you go in your mind, and and surely the fear of God includes that. But it has to be much more than that. In fact, I think it is much more than that. It is that, but it's not just that. You see, reverence is, is simply respect or veneration or awe. We can revere lots of things and lots of people. In fact, reverend means revered one. <laughs> Don't fear me. <laughs> so it can't just mean reverence. It has to mean something more than that. And I think it does. One theologian Define fear of God this way. He said, the reverent submission that leads to obedient trust. So the reverent, there it is, submission that leads to obedient trust. I, I kind of liked that when I first read it. It sounded really good. But is that biblical? So I decided I was going to check it out. So I, I did a little kind of word study. I looked up all the times that fear of God shows up in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Old Testament. And the fear of God shows up 25 times. So I decide to look at every, every one of those, right? 25 is not that bad. So I look at all 25 of them. 22 of them are in reference to those who do fear God, and three of them are in reference to those who do not fear God. And what's fascinating is that whether they fear God or do not fear God, their actions are tied to that descriptor of are you a God-fearer or not. So in other words, those who fear God were told that they obeyed God. Those who did not fear God, they disobeyed God. And so what we see is that the fear of God is closely tied to our actions. That our actions are demonstrators of whether we fear God or not. So we, we could say that the fear of God is our posture of reverence, but it's also our obedient actions in response to this one that we fear. See, the fear of God is to know that a moment of existence without him or outside of his will in disobedience to him, it's hell. It's actually what Jesus is getting at in Luke chapter 12. So in Luke chapter 12, this, is, uh, this was in our order of service as our, uh, one of our passages for reflection. Luke 12, Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, I tell you, my friends, he's Speaking to his friends, not to unbelievers. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What is it that Pharaoh can do? What is it the worst that man can do? They can take life, but there's one who can take the soul. 
There's one who can take our very souls because he has authority over death itself because he has been victorious over death. You see, the the Bible calls death the last enemy and Jesus has confronted that enemy and he has proved victorious over it. And because he is victorious through his resurrection, he has showed that he has authority not just over this world, but over the world to come. That he has authority not just over our bodies, but over our very souls. This is why he can say in that same passage, after he says, fear him who can cast your soul into hell, he says to his friends, but fear not. Fear not. Because the one who has authority over your souls cares for you. Fear him, but do not fear the hell that he can bring because he cares for you. And so the fear of God is coming to God in in joyful submission to him. The fear of God drives us to him, not not causes us to cower away, but, but towards him in obedience to his will. And that's what the midwives do. The fear of God led them to obey God and to disobey Pharaoh. Fear had controlled Pharaoh and it caused him to perpetrate evil. But the fear of God controlled the midwives so that they would protect life. They actively disobeyed Pharaoh. This is nothing less than civil disobedience. It's exactly what this is. So what do we think about that? I mean, what do we think about them actively disobeying the authority over them? Because we know, if you've read your Bibles, you know Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, who is in Rome under a government that at times was oppressive to Christians and under a Caesar who was no fan, no friend of the Christian church, Paul is writing in Romans 13 and says that for Christians, we are to be subject to our authorities in everything. So what do we think about the midwives? Were they wrong? Should they have gone along with Pharaoh when Pharaoh comes and questions them and says, why have you done this? Should they have said, well, you know, you're right, Pharaoh. You're right, we we completely disobeyed you. We completely disobeyed you and we let the children live. And and surely they would have been killed and maybe other midwives would have come who would not have disobeyed Pharaoh. What do we think about what they have to say in their response to them? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, um, (laughs) this is kind of like poking a little bit. Uh, That's what it sounds like. And, And there's a lot of debate actually amongst commentaries and theologians as to whether the the Hebrew midwives are outright lying or if they actually decided uh, that they weren't going to show up on time. So, uh, so the thought is that some people think that perhaps what occurred was uh, they would hear that a woman was going into labor and they just delayed. You know, well, I got to do the laundry. I got, you know, I got to make dinner for, for my husband. I, I got to go look for the kids, you know, that kind of thing. And so they delayed. Now, whether they outright lied or they delayed, either way, they are being disobedient to Pharaoh, and they are consciously doing it. What do we think about this? More importantly, what does the Bible think about this? That's what we find. We hear what it is that God thinks of this in verse 20 and 21. The Hebrew midwives say these things to Pharaoh. 
They have preserved these lives, these lives of these boys. And in verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. God approves of what they did. He doesn't condemn them for their actions. He blesses them. In the Old Testament, to have children is a sign of God's favor, of his blessing to you. And God gives these midwives their own children. He blesses them. He affirms their disobedience. He allows Israel to grow strong and to increase. You see, what we see here is that God is declaring that the obedience to God supersedes obedience to anyone else. That under normal circumstances, we're to obey our superiors and those in authority. When their commands and their rules and their laws are in keeping with God's kingdom ethic, we're to obey them. But when they are calling us to disobey God, when they're calling us and demanding us to turn from what is right and good, we have greater responsibility to obey God than man. Okay, now, now before you take this and go, well, well, I can do whatever I want then. I'll just say it's unethical. And, you know, that those laws that kind of are inconvenient, that I don't really like, you know, that, that maybe I don't think they're really fair. Well, I'll just disregard them. I'll ignore them. Well, don't do that. <laughs> Before you run and do that, that's not what this passage is talking about. No, this passage is talking about when, when rulers or authorities, when people around us would, would prompt us and encourage us to do the very thing that is the opposite of God's law, to oppose God's law and to challenge it. That's what it's talking about. When it when those around us are encouraging us to disobey God, it means that in those times we are to fear God more than we are to fear man. It means that we're not going to engage in unethical behavior because the laws over us or the pressures of the people around us are encouraging us to do so. So it might mean, students, that your classmates when they're encouraging you to do those things that you know are contrary to what God has called you to. Cheat on a test. Treat a kid poorly. Ignore them. Speak badly of your teacher. All the different pressures that are associated with, with what it means to be an elementary school kid and a middle school kid and a high school and college and, and post-college. All those different pressures that, that are pushed upon us. And it doesn't matter what your schooling is. It doesn't matter where we are living. Those pressures will come. It's in those moments, guys, in those moments, students, that, that we have to decide who, who will we fear more, God or man. It means for us parents and adults that, that when we're encouraged by our boss, by our supervisor to fudge the numbers, which I know I'm sure some of you have been encouraged in the past to, when, when we've been tempted to not tell the full truth to our client, when it might mean, in keeping with God's law, that we actually say no to a position. I have a friend who had to say no to his medical residency because to go to this particular residency would have required him to go on a, a rotation through an abortion clinic. It means saying no. It means that we will fear God more than we will fear man. 
means in those times that, that it actually is worth it. That to fear God and obey him is, is worth being made fun of by our classmates. And it's worth feeling the ire of our supervisor and it's worth feeling the jeers of the culture. We know that there are already pressures on the church and there will continue to be pressures on the church for us to look more and more like the world's behavior. But, but who will we fear? Will we fear man or will we fear God? Friends, in those moments, we must fear God. Even when it means that we will disregard and we will disobey and we will ignore the pressures of man, we must fear God. This is nothing new that the church faces today. This has been the story that has been shown throughout Scripture and throughout church history. This isn't new to the Old Testament or just confined to the Old Testament. We see it in the New as well. Do you remember in Acts? In Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit has filled the apostles. They've been filled with the Spirit and they are proclaiming Christ boldly. In Acts chapter 4, John and Peter are brought in before the rulers, the high priests, the authorities, and they are questioned because of their teaching. And what do they say? They said there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must now be saved. What did they say? Christ is the only way. He's the only way to salvation. That is what we are proclaiming, and we will not deviate from that. The authorities didn't like this. <laughs> and what did they say? They said, you need to stop talking about this. You need to, to quiet your mouths. You need to be silent. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We won't stop. We'll continue to proclaim it. And then when they left, they prayed, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In essence, what they were saying was, God, fill us with a fear of you. Fill our hearts with the fear of God that we would not quiver before man, but, but that we would obey God with great courage. That just as the midwives obeyed God with great courage, that, that Peter and John and Acts would. And whether it's Peter and John or the midwives before Pharaoh or Wilberforce before the British Parliament calling for the end of the slave trade, or whether it's Bonhoeffer or Corey ten Boom challenging Nazi Germany, or us in our daily faithful obedience in our places of work, of school, of home. We're called to fear God more than man. To obey him, not the whims of man. That we would follow and obey the God who has created us, the one who has power over this entire world, over the power of of death itself. He is the one that we fear. And he is the one that we obey. The one who cares for us. The one who calls us. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you. We thank you that you go with us. That you are near to your people. That you have cared for us. And we know that even as you are caring for us, that your love and grace is showered upon us, that that does not free us from the burdens of this broken world. And so we ask that you would give us courage, courage that comes through your spirit to follow you, 
to obey you, to fear you more than we would fear man. God, we are in need of your help. Only you can do that. And so we ask, fill us with your spirit and give us great courage and boldness to follow you. We pray in Christ's name and all God's people said together,